If you were to ask them, many historians might tell you that one of the most interesting tenets of studying history is being able to compare, contrast, and draw lessons from the lives of different historical figures and people who may not have ever necessarily known each other, but who are drawn together through their identities and experiences nonetheless. Uh, in this podcast episode, I hope to do that um, through an analysis of two men who I, whose lives I found to be uh, really enthralling throughout the course of my research, and whom I hope you find to be as well. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Dalton. I'm the outgoing president of the History Students Association, and I'm also a McGill student in my third year, um, who's focused a lot of my research on and around the, the queer experience, and in particular, uh, the experience of gay men in proximity to the, the interwar period uh, and World, World War II, and subsequently a lot of the early Cold War era, um, in the English-speaking world. And to this end, I've done a lot of research on the, uh, the gay interwar experience, on, uh, the, on, on gay men in the military, and on the Lavender Scare in particular. And today I want to share with you uh, a bit of comparative research that I did between two uh, gay historical figures, uh, Quentin Crisp and Donald Vining. So I'm going to talk a lot about their lives and then try to understand uh, how we can draw lessons from the different ways these two men uh, experienced difference in terms of how they experienced homophobic violence, in terms of how they identified, and in terms of how they presented and performed their gendered and sexual identities. So let, let's begin with uh, a little bit more about Quentin Crisp then. Uh, so uh, Quentin Crisp was the youngest of four children. He was born in Surrey, England in 1908 to a solicitor and to a former governess actually, and his notability basically emerged with an autobiography he wrote called The Naked Civil Servant. Um, and at various points, Crisp was a sex worker, an artist, a writer, and a model. And throughout all of that, the identity he performed was centered around this uh, fundamental idea of, of queer theory, really, which is that he wanted to um, make a disruptive and often pointed resistance to what was sexually normal in order to do to kind of accomplish a naked civil service and uh, and, and develop Britain for the better. Hence the name of his autobiography and uh, of subsequent uh, films that portrayed the life of Crisp. So in essence, his life brought gay liberation and queer sexuality to the kind of the forefront of the British national consciousness when his autobiography and when the film about his life was released in the 1970s. So that's a little bit of context about his life. Um, but what's interesting about Crisp is that in his own words, um, even as early as, he, as when he was a British youth, he remembered thinking of to himself that he didn't want to, quote, only wallow in, in misery um, and facing homophobia, but he actually wanted to reach the very essence of the sexual difference that came to define his life. He wanted to represent being gay, he wanted to represent queerness, if you will, and he wanted to go to work, quote unquote, on changing British society and on undoing uh, the fears and the looks that he would get um, from people that from people in the street, really, as he uh, in his in his time uh, cruising in Soho and in his time around the Black Cat Bar, which was a kind of a gay space in Soho, and he wanted to really combat um, those feelings by actually ex by proactively being visible in in areas outside of those gay enclaves. He would intentionally go to new areas of London um, where he knew there wasn't a gay presence, and and really embody. Um, effeminacy and embody the, to be visibly homosexual, in other words, uh, in, in a way that we might kind of understand as queer resistance today. And we see this in, in especially in how he entered art spaces, right, and in the spaces he worked in. According to one student who once, um, you know, painted Chris as part of an art class, she remembered how 
During the war years, he would don, quote, flaming red hair, blue eyeshadow, and long painted fingernails and walk to and from class that way, even uh, undergoing, you know, jaunts in the streets. And she described this presence as being totally overwhelming at first, but as the war approached, it became more comforting and, and people actually started to accept it. This is not to say that he didn't result, this didn't result in violence as well, right? In his autobiography, Crisp talks about, um, really being the subject of uh, intense violence, both in government buildings as he was trying to, you know, file paperwork, but also just as he walked through the street, um, being assaulted if he was to walk out at night, uh, and even in broad daylight. So that's that's a little summary into the into into the the strategy and into into the story behind Quentin Crisp's identity. I want to now uh, turn towards another um, uh, gay man who who would have lived and and been and self-identified as a gay man in right around the same time albeit in a different area of the world. So Donald Vining uh, was born, um, you know, around nine years after, um, actually more like 10 years after, but yes, yeah, uh, around a decade after Quentin Crisp, and he grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Originally in rural Pennsylvania. And he actually uh, came to the realization that he was gay as soon as the age of 16. Um, so uh, in, the, in the 1930s, really. And what makes Vining particularly notable is that he was a lifelong diarist since even before he turned 16, which made his journals a rare holistic self-narration of gay life um, from coming out, quote-unquote, and for self-realization of his, of his sexual identity all the way up until his death, which would come in the 1990s, actually just two years before Crisp died. They died basically around the same time. But in, in, in any sense, relative to Chris, Vining is actually drastically uh, much less well-known um, as a figure, uh, basically only known by, by scholars of, um, of gay history in the United States. But throughout his life, he was a writer. He, he had actually a lot of uh, successful short stories, a lot of which are still engaged with in, in American classrooms that were geared towards children. Um, and later on in his life, he reoriented his writing um, to be more, more so focusing on gay identity and on the lessons he had learned um, throughout um, his life as a gay man. And he wrote a lot on the notion of coming out in particular and why he didn't more um, openly come out throughout the course of his life despite being, uh, despite having understood himself as gay in his, in his journals since the age of 16. So Vining was unafraid to self-identify as gay, like I mentioned, um, but and, and to identify himself even as gay to others. But the purposes and circumstances within which he did this, I found in my research to vary drastically, right? So um, he would do so to avoid conscription in the army, for example. He would do so, and he would mainly do so in order to find other gay men and to find um, uh, find other gay men to network with and to find sexual partners before he eventually found his long-term monogamous partner um, in the form of a man he actually lived with for and lived in and was um, basically the equivalent of married to, like he, he would have married him, I would assume, had gay marriage been legal, but basically lived with for his entire life. Um, now, what I want to do here is, is engage in a really, in, in this closing um, minutes of this podcast, is talk about why I'm talking, uh, why I'm, I'm juxtaposing Vining with Crisp, right? So Vining, like Crisp, experienced homophobic violence, but the, the violence that Vining experienced was different in important and distinct ways from that of Crisp. Vining was never attacked in the street like uh, like Crisp was, right? Um, in fact, when he was attacked, it it, it was when he was um, it, it was usually in inside spaces between one person and the other. He describes being um, uh, like kind of 
trying to, to find sexual partners, trying to find gay men, and then realizing that the, the to, to have sex with, and then realizing that the, the men that he was trying to have these uh, sexual encounters with weren't actually gay and were in fact straight, and he recalls being blackmailed, um, and in some cases threatened at gunpoint um, by by these men, and, uh, and uh, basically subjected to violence and assault. But critically, um, Donald Vining had a different outlook on, um, on, uh, being visibly effeminate and gay relative uh, and, and performing uh, sexuality and gayness really uh, relative to Quentin Crisp. So he kind of took issue with um, what he described as quote, quoting his journal here, the um, screaming bells that would come out on the beaches of New York City where he lived for a long time. He, he despised uh, and, and really didn't, didn't agree with how men would freely neck on the beach because he thought that it, uh, that's not, that wasn't the way that he thought uh, gay men should be presenting themselves and should be uh, trying to transform society. So really, the, the uh, Crisp and uh, Vining's different outlooks reflect drastically different um, perceptions and understandings of what gay liberation should look like. Uh, Vining, would, for example, would go on to become a political activist um, later in his life uh, for gay liberation, which was a little different than the, the approach uh, Crisp took. But in his book, Crisp basically uh, theorized two different, um, in his autobiography and later on in life, Crisp would theorize two different kinds of violence that gay men would be subjected to. External violence, uh, external group violence, and internal group uh, anti-gay violence. And my research on uh, Vining, not only Vining, Crisp, and other figures, like kind of bringing this all together, really wants to look at the relationship between how gay men performed masculinity and performed their gender and the kinds of violence they were accepted to in the interwar period, um, basically the period from the 1930s all the way up until the 1950s, because my research essentially will try and look at the ways in, uh, uh, in which basically all gay men in this period uh, experienced violence. But what, I'd be, what, what I'm looking, looking for in my research really is how um, gender presentation, how uh, men, men perform their sexuality and perform their masculinity might lead to the experiencing of more types of, you know, for example, police violence or violence on the street, random assaults, versus how it might um, result in community violence. So violence between what Crisp calls and what Crisp and Vining both describe as a divide between more masculine men, known as the roughs in, in Britain in particular, and the queens, um, which were more feminine presenting gay men uh, in the British vernacular at that time. And this is similar to the kinds of divisions that um, Vining talks about when he talks about the men and the bells in New York. Uh, on, Long, on Long Island, for example, in the 1940s. So in essence, that's what my research focuses on, comparative analyses of gay diarists, gay autobiographers, in order to understand the ways in which they might have experienced research differently. And it's my hope that um, in really dissecting and taking a, a, a more critical lens to the different ways in which these men might have experienced violence, we can glean new insights um, throughout other periods of history as well into the different ways in which identities intersected to generate violence and uh, lived experience and identity in different ways. So I really thank you for listening. I know this went a little bit longer. I had a, a lot to say, uh, but I really hope that you enjoyed listening to a little bit more about my research. And thank you for all of the work that's been done on this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Bye and good night.